you haven't turned with me yet, please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 as we walk through our text today. This is one of the most um, difficult, most misunderstood text in all of Scripture. And undoubtedly, we've all heard it before as an uh, eye for an eye, uh, tooth for a tooth, uh, and turning the other cheek. And it's something that we've heard about, but I think many of us find it very hard to do. And we, wanted to, we want to know, what does it really mean? I mean, how, how far do we take it? And in what context do we take it? Uh, I'm reminded of the story of the Irishman who uh, had been a professional boxer. And he ended up becoming, he, he got saved. He became a preacher. And as he was doing, uh, setting up an evangelistic tent for a revival, some young guys came in and started causing some trouble. And they were trying to provoke him. And uh, they kind of smarted off to him and and he just he stood and looked at him, and they were really trying to provoke him. So one of them goes up and punches him right punches him right in the face. Here, he throws a punch and hits the the Irish uh, former boxer preacher in the face, and the boxer just stares at him, and then he sticks out his chin like this, and the guy hits him again across the face, and he goes, "The Lord told me I only had to do this once." So he takes off his jacket, starts rolling up his sleeves, and goes, "Let's go." I think many of us are a little bit like that. We take it literally. We say we offer the turn the other cheek. And we have a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. I mean, if we look at it and we apply it to every single sphere of life, I mean, does this condone abusive, spousal abuse? Child abuse? Is that what it's about? I, I mean, I've heard of instances where spouses will even say, I've heard women say that I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and like to allow this abuse to continue. And let's take it out of that context and even put it into the context of war. Can a Christian then serve as a soldier? About battle, what do you do with that? Can I not, can I not serve in the military? What about being a police officer? You mean a, a police officer says to me, a Christian police officer, he says, if he, he hits me, you mean I can't hit him back or use force? What's the context of this? How do we apply it? Is it for every single sphere of our life? What does it mean then to turn the other cheek? What is Jesus saying to us? And how can we apply this then to our everyday lives? That's what we're going to find out today. We're going to try to answer some of these very thick and heavy questions. And we're going to delve into this passage. And remember, we need to understand what was going on at the time to truly get the full flavor of what Jesus has for us. And before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our time together that he might give us clarity and that we might have open hearts and minds to receive the truth that he has for us. Father, we come before you desirous desirous and hungry to know what this means. Lord, often we've, if we've read the Bible, we've read over this and we've wondered what it means and we know how quickly and how often we fall short and how often our tempers get in the way and we desire vengeance. And yet, Lord, you call us to something altogether different, a different standard that's higher. Lord, help us to understand and apply this text, to understand what you intended it to mean and how we can apply it in the way that you intended in our everyday lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we need to set this up a little bit to get an understanding of what's going on. Remember, we call this the upside-down kingdom because this is what Jesus has for us as citizens of his kingdom. This is his inaugural address where he's telling us how we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. So make sure you keep that in mind as we go through this. As, as citizens of this kingdom, we're to act in this way. Now, Jesus starts off, I want us to really look at this text and break it down. It's very important. 
In verse 38, Jesus said, You have heard it was said, an eye and eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus begins, and he starts off by quoting um, an Old Testament thing called the Law of Retaliation. In Latin, it's known as the Lex Talionis. And for us to really grasp and apply what Jesus has for us, it requires us examining this law of retaliation. That's the first point in your notes. Examining this law of retaliation, this lex uh, talionis, and what it means. Now, this passage uh, that Jesus is referring to is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19. And it goes like this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong, any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, let me get the context a little bit for this. This is Moses that's writing. He's writing to the nation of Israel, and he's basically helping them understand and set up a judicial system on how they're to live in this this world that they have, as a theocracy in which they were, God gives them these certain laws that they are governed by. And he's, he's laying this down. How do you deal with witnesses in certain cases? He says, only on the evidence of two, two or three, or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. So this is a person who is, their intent is to bring that person down and they're going to lie to do it. They're going to injure that person even though the person didn't do anything wrong. And he says, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So this is, he's setting it up. It's a, it's a parameter. So if a person didn't, couldn't just accuse anybody. I mean, we, we have that today. People accuse people of crimes. And what happens if you falsely accuse someone? Especially in, Jesus, in, in this day, if you falsely accuse someone, you know it to be wrong. Well, the penalty that they were going to receive, you were going to receive. So this is to cause people to, to pause, to think about what they were about to say. So it's, it's a built-in buffer, if you will. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and, shall hear and fear, and shall never again, never again commit any such evil among you. He goes on. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, there's other passages in the Old Testament that he refers to this, and he talks about even a stripe for stripe, a burn for burn, that if that person should lose it, um, and that's what they wanted to have done, that's what this person needs to have done to them. So we, we have to get this context of what it meant. Now, why was this law in place? It was, all, it was meant that a person should not be punished any further than what they had done. So in other words, the punishment should fit the crime. That's the purpose of this law. It's to make sure that a person didn't have it escalated. So it's the, uh, the understanding is, is that it's to guarantee an appropriate retribution. It was to guarantee an appropriate retribution to ensure that the punishment would fit the crime. Now, at the same time, it was to guard against personal revenge. Guard against personal revenge. Now, um, undoubtedly, we're familiar, or you, you might have heard, not undoubtedly, but you might have heard the, the known as the Chicago Way, Right? And there's a, a film in the 1980s that talks about this, and it has two characters, and they're talking about um, what was going on in, in the mob era, or the gangster era, the Chicago in the 1920s. 
And there's two characters, and they're talking with one another. And one is uh, Elliot Ness, uh, who's played by Kevin Costner. And the other is a guy named Malone, played by Sean Connery. And Elliot Ness is trying to arrest Al Capone. And he's trying to figure out, how do I get him? And Connery's character says to him, he goes, you want to know how to get Capone? I'll tell you how to get Capone. Here's, this is how you do it. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He puts one of yours in the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. Now, what's his point in saying that? He's saying that you bring it up. They hurt you, you hurt him back. And in, in some ways, it's a perverted golden rule. The golden rule is you treat people as you want to be treated. But there's the opposite of the golden rule, which is saying, I'm going to treat them how they treated me. And we do this all the time. We, st- we do it as little kids. If a little kid gets hit, what does the other kid do? He goes and hits him back. Why did you do that? He hit me first. He hit me first. And we do this as adults. They hurt me, I'm going to get him back. They cut me off in traffic, I'm going to cut them off in traffic. How many of you have actually done that? Okay, some of you have because I've seen you on the expressway. Right? But it's true. We want to get people back. We don't want them to get away with it. Right? We want justice and we want it now. And that's the point of this. It's to guard against personal revenge, further escalating. We've all heard of the... The, uh, the infamous story of the Hatfield and the McCoys, right? They're infamous. Why? Because this family kept going back and forth and going back and forth. And it, they become infamous in, in history because of that, especially American history. And it's interesting that this feud started because one of the family hurt another member of the opposite family. And then they responded in kind. And it, did you know, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but it occurred between the years 1863 and 1891. And during that period of time, 19 people died. That's how much, it was going back and forth. You hurt me, I kill him. You kill him, we're going to kill you. And it went back and forth, back and forth, because there's no end to it. So the purpose of this law was to say, no, 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 that can't happen. It's life for life. If they killed him, and then, then they get killed. And that's it, done. It's all done. But if he hurt you, you can't kill him. He just gets that hurt. So it's to ensure um, an appropriate retribution and guard against personal revenge. Guard against personal revenge. Now, as we think about that, we have to say then, what then, how do we, how do we apply this then? It's to, to guard against personal revenge. But, okay, uh, Jesus is saying an eye and eye, a tooth for a tooth. But he's also saying, now, turn the other cheek. I tell you something different. In my world, it's not going to be about a, a, a retribution or a response like that, that you are to turn the other cheek. Now, what does that mean? In our world of rights, which everybody is clamoring about today, talking about my civil right to do this, you don't have the right to do that, what right do we have as Christians? How much do we exercise our rights and how much do we forsake our rights? Do we give them up for the kingdom of God? Because I see a lot of Christians out there saying, clamoring for rights, and there are certain times that I wonder, is this where God's saying, turn the other cheek? That we are to suffer. So what I want us to do is I want us to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, and that trumps our earthly rights, our earthly citizenship. And we need to rethink our rights as Christians. To rethink our rights as Christians, if we're truly going to get this. Now, as we're saying that, let me, let me try to explain this a little bit. This is not about um, espousal abuse, okay? This is not about that. 
This is not about watching, sitting and watching someone injure someone else and not doing anything about it. Some in church history have taken it this, to this way. They've watched their family being abused, and they said, I'm to turn the other cheek. This is not to enable that type of behavior. That's not the context. That's not what it's talking about. Nor is it talking about being a complete pacifist um, and, and refusing to serve in the military. It's not about that because we see... And we see the military referred to in Scripture, two instances specifically, when the Roman soldiers come to John the Baptist, and they are repentant, and they say, you know, we've come to be baptized, what must we do? And he says, refuse to extort people and be content with your wages. Do your job. Be a good soldier. Don't leave. He didn't say leave the military. He didn't say drop it all. He said, be a good soldier. So he's saying that you need to do it and do it well. And in Romans chapter 13, which is not in, on your notes, but Romans chapter 13, um, we, it says in the scripture, and I don't have this up there, but Romans 13, 3 through 5 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have near, no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So he's saying then that God has set up governments and he said there's a legal understanding of things that if people step out of line, they could be hurt. So he's not saying leave the military and not use force in that regard because like police keepers and those in the military are to be promoting what is good and restraining that which is evil. Okay, so that's not the context of this. Jesus is talking about as someone who is a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. So this, we need to understand that this passage should not be used to keep you from defending yourself. In certain instances, there are people that flee suffering. Uh, Luke 12, 11, 22, 36 through 38, and Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 24. Or just running, uh, getting away from evil when persecution comes. Because for, there's often when a, a failure to resist a violent attack leads to more serious abuse. Acting in love toward an attacker will often include taking steps to prevent him from further attacks. So Jesus' teaching must be applied in the light of related scriptures that address the similar situation. As the ESV study Bible draws that out. So then, how then do we respond? And what do we do? Well, it requires us looking at Jesus' example. He's our template. If we're to understand how we're to exercise our rights and when we are to, to leave them be, we need to look to Jesus and make sure that we are emulating his example. It's just like that book in the 1990s that was uh, reissued and became real popular, and you could see with bracelets. It was a book by the man named of Charles Sheldon who wrote a book called In His Steps. And, it, and you may not have heard of Sheldon's name, but I guarantee if you've been around for any period of time, you saw the bracelets or the t-shirts that said WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And it was saying, how, how then are we to respond? We have to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? How would he respond? What would he do? So we have to look at his example and see what he did when he was confronted. Now, there are times when force comes to him, and then he flees right through the crowd. He just disappears. He goes away, walks through the crowd, and he ends up not going through this violent act that is being talked about in this passage. So we, what then does, what are we looking at then? He, he, he's stepping away from it in that regard, but there's obviously the part where he is suffering. In his last week of his life, right before the crucifixion, 
First Peter lays this out for us. We look at him here and how much he was willing to suffer. So we see then that he is willing to suffer and give himself. Peter, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So looking at Jesus' example, we see that when Jesus was doing good, it's because he was doing good and that people didn't like that. That's why he was suffering. Matter of fact, when we look within our text today, we see that Jesus is writing in the context of being a disciple of his. So when he's even talking about the slap, when someone slaps you, it's an open-handed slap. And it's very interesting that he says, when someone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, in the ancient world, just like today, most people are right-handed, right? So if I slap you, am I going to hit your right cheek? No, I'm going to hit your left cheek. So it's the understanding of he's pulling back, and it's a double insult, and he's backhanding someone. And what's going on there is, is he's saying when someone slaps you, they're going through, they're trying to injure you. They're trying to insult you on behalf of my name. So it's the understanding of, in the context of persecution, of one's faith. So we have to look and make sure that we emulate Jesus' example. We understand what's going on there. And understanding when that occurs, we are to surrender. Why? To save others. Involves surrendering to save others. We're surrendering our rights in order that other people might be reached. Now that sounds strange. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He's surrendering himself so that we might be saved. And we see this brought out again and again. How far the apostles were willing to suffer for the name of Christ so that other people might be saved. Paul says, I wish that I was accursed that my countrymen might be saved. Or he says again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He's, Paul is, by the Spirit, writing to young Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I am willing to suffer that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He is willingly submitting to this persecution on behalf of the name of Christ so that other people might come to know Jesus. See, we don't, we don't do that very often. We're too busy concerned about ourselves and preserving our personal comforts that we are not willing to see that by our suffering on behalf of the name of Christ, Jesus' name is magnified. Because people stop and they wonder, what would possess you to do that? What would possess you to go through that? Perhaps an illustration would suffice. And this is a very, very low illustration in that it doesn't come near of what's been talked about here. But today we are people obsessed with technology and the newest thing. So when the newest phone comes out, what do people do? The night that it comes out, the store that it comes out, what do they do? They wait in line. They camp out, right? And if it's a really good product, you'll get a lot of people. And they're willing to camp out because this product is so good and amazing. They're willing to go without sleep. They're willing to endure cold because of the amazing part of the product. And that can be seen for anything. It can be seen in the movies. It can be seen in in the newest book to come out. People will suffer because of how great that is. 
And the Olympics is getting ready to start. And we have people that are, these athletes have endured suffering because of the glory of what is to come and the potential that's there. So that's what is going on. We're willing to suffer on behalf of the name of Christ, but how, because of how glorious His name is. And so when we suffer in that regard, and people see the hostility that we endure, the name of Jesus is magnified because people look at you and go, what would possess you to do that? Jesus would. Who is this Jesus? I want to know more about Him. He must be amazing. What would possess you to give up your rights to, to, to suffer in that way? Because we, want, they, we, by suffering, show that we want God to be glorified and we also want to see others come to know Jesus. So, God desires that we do go through suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, as it says in the book of Acts. Because it is through our suffering that we are able to be testifying through trials. Testifying through trials. See, when these trials come, we, see, we show again how great God is. We're not just suffering to save other people, but we are testifying to the magnitude and the greatness of God through trials. Now, is there any time that we can then assert our rights, our earthly citizenship? Because in one regard, we are, as Christians, we have a heavenly citizenship, and we are to suffer on behalf of the name. When then can we exert our earthly rights? Well, we, we can be asserting our earthly rights when it is applicable. Asserting our earthly rights when it is applicable. Now, we see Paul doing this. There's times where Paul willingly suffers on behalf of the name of Christ, and he's rejoicing at the ability to do so. But there's other times where he asserts his Roman citizenship, and he doesn't suffer in that regard. And these are case-by-case basis. We can see this in Acts chapter 16. But when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police, saying, Let those men go. Paul had been arrested, put in jail. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. You can see this in Acts chapter 22 as well. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices. He's testifying to the resurrection and to Christ. And they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. It took me a while to pay for this, in essence. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth, just like in the United States. If you're born here, you're a citizen here. You have the rights of an American citizen. So those who were about to examine him withdrew him from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which was illegal to do. So you see then, Paul is exercising his rights, and he's, I mean, there are times where he is absolutely willing to suffer, but then he's, there are other times when we see that he is 
using his earthly citizenship to further, in essence, the gospel. And we are to do so as well. We have opportunities in our world to exercise our freedoms and rights as American citizens to help promote the heavenly kingdom. Now, there are times, however, just like Christ did, when he suffered unjustly. He had done nothing wrong. And there are going to be times when we will suffer unjustly when we're persecuted for the name of Christ so that the name of Christ might be magnified. It could be at your workplace. It could be with your business. It could be in, in the, with your institution or your group or at your school or a, a class project. You know, maybe, maybe you're a student and the teacher asks you to say, do and support something that you stand against. And by saying, I can't do that, you are showing your teacher and professor, I would rather suffer a loss of grade and status rather than impugn the name of God. Or maybe even at your workplace. That's a hard one to do. I mean, it's controversial right now, just like in Oregon. There was a, um, a couple, a husband and wife team, own a bakery, and they refused to cater a same-sex wedding, and they get sued for it. See, this is the instance of what we're talking about. It's going on. But the name of Christ is magnified. They're saying, we are willing to suffer injustice because we are testifying to the greatness of God's name. We're going to stand against what is wrong and for what is right. That's a hard thing to do. I didn't say this is an easy thing. This is a very tough medicine to take. And it requires a great deal of discernment great deal of discernment to understand how to apply this in every aspect of our lives. So, testifying and through trials and asserting our rights when applicable, then how are we respond when such injustice comes to us? Well then, that's our next point. We're going to look into how we might be employing the proper response when persecuted. Employing the proper response when persecuted. Now, I want us to really walk through this text. We're going to walk through it piece by piece here. In verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But what he's saying there is a person who is doing evil to you. He's not talking about the devil here. He is talking the way that it is worded within the Greek language is the understanding of someone is perpetrating evil against you. You have to be fighting it in that regard. But by submitting in, uh, to them, you are showing their evil and you are testifying to God's goodness as you are, they are being revealed and unmasked for how evil they really are. Jesus says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, as I just mentioned before, the understanding of slap, it's an open palm, but he pulls it back because he's hitting him. And it's, it's a complete insult. And they are being insulted on the name of Christ. So the first thing that we can see, or the first part of our response involves us suffering in dignity. Suffering in dignity. That's the first response that we have to look at. Though there are times when we can assert our rights in that regard, and though there are times we have to understand the context in which this occurs, in this arena we are suffering on behalf of the name of Christ, we are to be willing to suffer in dignity on behalf of the name of Jesus. Now, I could think of different people who have employed this similar strategy. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi would be one. I can think of Martin Luther King is another one, a great example 
uh, with him. And I also think of Jackie Robinson. And we've shared about Jackie Robinson in here before. Because it was 66 years ago that Jackie Robinson helped break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And it was a monumental moment, opening the door wide for equality in baseball. And when Dodgers president Branch Rickey selected him to become the first African-American to play in the majors this century, he wanted a man who could restrain himself to uh, responding to the ignorance and the hatred and the persecution that he would face. He knew it would be ugly. And I love that quote. They captured that in the movie, uh, 42, where Ricky says to him, I know you're a good Paul player. What I don't know is if, do you, if you have the guts. And Robinson was known for not keeping his composure at all times and wanting to respond And Robinson says, Mr. Ricky, are you looking for a Negro who is afraid to fight back? And I love his response. Robinson, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. Because he realized it would expose the ugliness of it. And you get this played out in the film. When one of the the, the Phillies manager, if if you've seen the movie, the Phillies manager starts shouting all of these racial racial, epithets at Robinson. And everybody... Even the people that had been against Robinson start uniting to him because they see the things that he's enduring on behalf of this. What he's willing to go through, the indignity that he's willing to suffer, and it brought people around him. See, it's a biblical principle that we see here. Be willing to suffer indignity on behalf of the name of Christ. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that. That was one of the key differences between him and Malcolm X. Both had similar goals in mind, equality. But Malcolm X was willing to endorse force, while Martin Luther King Jr. was not. He would rather endure hostility because it would unmask evil for what it really was. He would unmask it for what it really, really was. So we have to be ready to be suffering indignity. Now let's get back to our text. Let's look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, one's cloak was considered to be an 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 alienable possession. It could be taken in the daytime, and it was meant to be used as collateral when one was really poor, but it had to be restored at nighttime for them to be able to sleep. So, if the disciples were to be sued for their tunics, which was an inner garment like a suit, except next to the skin, called a chiton, they were to go above and beyond and give their cloak as well. So their, their tunic, they would be sued for it. They were to go above and beyond that. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving hyperbole because no Jew in his right mind would be walking around on a loincloth exposing himself like that. But he's saying, in essence, be willing to suffer indignity for the name of Jesus and be ready to endure hostility because they're, they're being hostile towards you. They're trying to bring you down. They hate you so bad. They want to sue you and and really stick it to you. And he's saying, endure hostility for the name of Christ. Endure it. Go through it. Because Jesus is our example. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Grow weary or faint-hearted. God's calling us to suffer. To follow the example of Christ. Enduring hostility, even when people are suing us to testify to the name of Christ. And not only give him that, give him the rest as well. Here, take this as well. Take it. Is that good? 
It's the understanding of doing good to those who persecute you. It's giving a cup of water to our enemies, which we're going to be learning about more next week. It will heat burning coals on their head. Let's look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, here he is referring to the Roman practice of um, commandeering civilians to carry Roman objects for military reasons, usually. So they would commandeer them, and by law, you had to submit. You had to do, and and Jews hated it, because they hated Romans, first of all. And they hated helping Romans even more. So they're being commandeered to do different things. Now, we see this with Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, that's what, this is what's happening with Simon of Cyrene. When they pull him out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross. And there was a certain distance, though, that you could do it. Law required that you had to do it for a mile. And Jesus is saying, don't just do it for a mile, do it for two miles. Be willing to suffer indignity, hostility, and then submit willingly to these preposterous requests. Submit willingly so they see Jesus in you. Now again, this runs completely countercultural. And I and I know that as I say this, there's all these questions that come up in our minds. What about this situation? What about this? What about the lawyers for this? I don't know about that. I could get in serious trouble for that. And I don't pretend to know all the ramifications of it. But I do know this. God calls us to suffer on behalf of his name. Suffer on behalf of his name. Submitting willingly, submitting willingly. We go above and beyond so that they might be one to the name of Christ. We're to go through with this request, humble ourselves, not resisting, but submitting, enduring such hostility, and, tr- and by doing it, a watching world takes notice of the name of Jesus. He is magnified. His made, name is made known. Now let's look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who should borrow from you. Now, what's he saying here? Are we to always give to everyone who begs and comes at our door? This is not what Jesus is referring to here. What he is trying to show us is is that we're to be giving generously. It's about our heart and the condition of our heart and doing good to those who ask. Doing good to those who ask. It means giving an interest-free loan to the people that have it when you have it in your ability to give it. It means helping, being generous with our heart, being generous with our money, not being so tight and stingy, acknowledging Christ's stewardship of it, making sure that we are not trying to keep back, but we are trying to give generously. Again, I don't understand all of the ramifications involved with it. I just know this is what God is calling us to do, and every instance must be considered with prayer and sought with counsel. We're not to, I mean, Jesus is not giving us a treatise on our response to every form of evil that we may encounter. What he is showing us is what our heart attitude is to be like when we face, when we are faced with evil. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. We're entrusting ourselves to God. We're entrusting these things to God, not to the people that we're giving it to, but to God, acknowledging he is sovereign over our situations. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. I'm reminded of Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller, uh, professor, uh, president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. A great man of God, a great scholar. And the Southern Baptist denomination was going quite liberal in the early 90s. And so uh, 
he gets appointed by this conservative part of the Southern Baptist that really held to biblical truth and the Bible is the word of God. And he was appointed president at the age of 33 years of age. Seminary president. And he becomes president, and many of the liberal students who didn't believe the Bible to be the word of God, who advocated things that the Bible were against, staged a sit-in on the president's lawn. Protested, almost 200 of them. And they said to him, we're not leaving until you guarantee that you're not going to change us back to those old archaic ways. Do you know what Moeller did? God bless him. He ordered them all pizza. He gave everybody pizza, and he goes, hey, I appreciate you guys coming out. I appreciate you sitting up for what you believe, but we're not changing anything. This is the word of God. But he fed them. So we're saying here, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now this is the whole point of the message right here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the whole point. Take that home with you. That's what Jesus is trying to say to us. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't respond in kind. Endure evil and be good to them. Because in doing so, they, don't, they want to understand what would possess a person. Because in the natural order of things, and in the world in which we live, it's, I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to hurt you back. And when someone doesn't do that, it makes people stop and wonder why. And the name of Jesus is proclaimed and made known. That's the, this is the point of the entire message. Our heart attitude in the face of evil. To doing good to those who hurt us. To turn the other cheek means to magnify the name of Christ so that God would receive all glory. Are we willing to do it? That's the real question. Are we willing to endure hostility in our workplaces? Are we willing to endure hostility in our schools? In our businesses? All on behalf of the name of Christ. That's what God is calling us to. To suffer on behalf of His name doesn't mean that we're doormats for the world. That's not what he's referring to here. If we see someone being hurt, we are to respond accordingly. But when we find ourselves being persecuted on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ, God may well be calling us to suffer, to turn the other cheek for his name. That's how great God is, how wonderful he is. That he would give himself for us. We're following his example. And if you're here today and you've not yet trusted in Christ, you've not received him as Savior, then he is offering, extending that salvation to you now. And he says to you, receive me. I died on the cross for your sins. I give myself to you for you. And believe in me and you'll have forgiveness of sins, purpose in life, and eternal life. Don't wait. Call on him. The scripture is very clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He endured such hostility, such punishment, such injustice, such indignity on behalf of you for you so that you might have life and forgiveness in him. And all who come to him, no matter how far they've been, no matter what sins that they have done, that they can have forgiveness of sins and new life in him. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard truth. Lord, I'm not even sure if I understand all of the ramifications. Forgive me for my failures. I'm reminded again of 
of your word, it says, do not presume, many of you, to be teachers. We will face a stricter judgment. Lord, I confess my own limitations as I look and try to understand the height and depth of this passage and everything that it entails and how we might apply it to our lives. And Lord, while there are times I know that we can exert our earthly rights, there are other times when you desire us to suffer such indignity and hostility, submitting willingly so that your name might be proclaimed. Give us the strength and the courage to do so, even when all around us are telling us that we should respond in such and such a way. And Lord, we find ourselves in a confusing morass of fog trying to figure out where we're at. But may the clear breath of your word blow away the fog, the fog of cultural confusion and conformity that seeks comfort above all things. But may we receive the truth and may we walk in the way of Christ that others might see you and be saved. So, Lord, please glorify your name in our midst and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.